Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. Protesters in Seattle, Washington, have taken over several city blocks after a protracted standoff with the police force there, shutting down a police precinct, declaring part of the city's Capitol Hill neighborhood an autonomous zone. Citizen Hi, this is Sean Sanchez with the Marxist Think Tank. Today we're looking at headlines from around Seattle. The uh, Seattle Police Department's East Precinct in the Capitol Hill neighborhood has been taken over by protesters. Um, After nightly clashes with the police and uh, barrages of tear gas, apparently the Seattle PD decided to leave the precinct and let the protesters take over six blocks of Capitol Hill. For the past week since that, uh, people have been camping out, um, setting up uh, literature tables, playing movies, Bands are playing there. Um, as Simone, a famous rapper, has been um, live streaming from up there. Uh, they have medics. They have um, armed guards protecting the crowd from possible reactionary Proud Boy types. A um, little bit of everything. Anarchists, uh, Marxists, uh, city councilwoman uh, Sawant was up there um, talking with the crowds. There's an open mic where people can um, talk to each other out loud on a PA system. And uh, it's relatively peaceful, relatively calm. There was um, a guy apparently trying to run his car through the crowd, uh, and he ended up shooting one protester that was trying to um, basically stop him. Other than that, people uh, have been just making art, um, posters, uh, murals. There's a vigil there for George Floyd. And um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting time right now. I will be reporting from the Seattle Autonomous Zone when I get a chance here. Probably after you hear this, in maybe two to three days, I'll post a follow-up to this. For everyone in the Marxist Think Tank uh, Discord group and Facebook groups, um, yeah, let us know any questions you want us to ask uh, any of the guards or the medics or just any of the people in the crowd there. And we'll be sure to report back on that and give you their answers here on one of the podcast updates. I'm Sean Sanchez, and this is the Marxist Think Tank Podcast. Waistline, uh, Comrade Abdul and Comrade Robin, and uh, I'll actually allow themselves to give themselves a bit of a description of 
who they are and where they're from. Uh, so yeah, welcome, our Comrade Wasteline, Abdul and Robin. Hey, actually, um, my mother named me Daryl Mitchell. Wasteline is a nickname I picked up in high school. I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. I'm a second generation auto worker. And at an early age, I entered the uh, civil rights movement and were gone to become a founding member of an organization called the League of Revolutionary Black Workers in 1969. In the early 70s, I became a founding member of the Communist Labor Party. And since then, I've been involved in various struggles, edited a newspaper called The Southern Advocate, and uh, currently take part in a, a Facebook group uh, called Marxist Glossary Discussion. And that's a quick summary of uh, myself. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm Robin Yamans. I was a lawyer. I've been a lawyer in California for 50 years since I graduated from Stanford Law School. The first seven years of my career, I did mostly political criminal defense. And after that, I've been working in the family court with the, the victims of the horrible court system that we have. Hmm. Okay, thank you very much, Robin. My name is uh, Donald Abdul Roberts. Uh, I uh, participated in the uh, founding of an organization called uh, Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which was organizing workers at the point of production. And uh, that was in the uh, late 60s. And uh, I've been in and out of uh, different struggles since then. And I'm uh, originally from uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, but I cut my political teeth in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, mm. that's my background okay. at this point. Thank you very much, Abdul. Okay, well, yeah. Thank you, everyone, for, uh, for joining us. And uh, I think we're certainly going to have some fascinating uh, points from all of you with uh, different sort of areas and different organizations and, uh, of course, the experiences that you have all had. Um, so I understand that there's something that you've, um, uh, at least I know Daryl, Wasteline, and Robin have worked on, is the, the mini-glossary. Uh, it's a document that you guys have created. If you could just explain what that is exactly for people. Well, you know, like the, uh, well, the Marxist glossary, what it does is strive to create a common language for revolutionaries based on the insights of Marx and Engels and their creation of the science of society. In Marx's glossary, we define Marxism as the science of society because that's how Engels defined it in his book, Ludwig Feuerbach and the Classical German Philosophy. The point is that we reached a stage in our evolution where it was necessary for us to have this common language as the social struggle in the country started to heat up. So the work on glossary actually began in uh, 2010, but it really didn't go forward until roughly 2012 when Robin and I began to collaborate and on it together. And it, it's actually a Robin contribution and participation that made it possible to create and finish what is in fact today uh, two Marxist glossaries, one, a mini glossary that was sent to you, and two, the larger Marxist glossary. And number three is Glossario Marxista en Español, mm. which is the translation of mini glossary. 
I see. Okay, brilliant. Brilliant. Um, so yes, uh, I've, I have read uh, some of the mini glossary and uh, I'd say it's, it's a brilliant piece of work um, for someone who has read a couple of Marx's texts, some of the academic ones and some of these sort of more accessible ones. What you've got there is, is a really great document that brings together all of the Marxist terminology in a very understandable way. And uh, if you're someone who's new to Marxism, I think it's it's brilliant. And if you are someone who's been a Marxist, a communist for a long time, it's also brilliant to piece it all together. So it's really, really good. Where, where can people find the uh, the three glossaries that you have? Where, where's the best place that they can find them? A couple of places. You can uh, go to Facebook, actually, to the page Marxist Glossary Discussion and get a download. You also can get it through Amazon.com. And you can find it through Lulu Publishers online. I would like, however, just to take a moment to... Uh, mentioned an inspiration for Glossary, which was L. Harry Gould, who had created a Marxist Glossary out of Sydney, Australia, back in 1943. It was Harry L. Gould's inspiration, right, that drove us in uh, wanting to update and create a new Marxist Glossary. And uh, we just don't want to leave him out because he was deeply an inspiration for us. But the other thing you'll see if you look, if you compare like mini glossary with Harry Gould's wonderful glossary is that the words he's looking at are from a different era. He's from the industrial era and we're moving into the robotic era of globalization and the doc and the vocabulary you need to understand each period is different. Okay. That's that's actually perfect, uh, Robin. I was I was actually going to ask something very similar because, uh, yes, in in the glossary you you do mention this quite a lot the uh, the industrial revolution into the digital revolution, um, and and how that's changing. So if you don't mind, yeah, what what impact is the digital revolution going to have on on class relations, on human development, and particularly on on communist organizing organizing? Well, you know, like. When we talk about the changes, we're talking about a qualitative change in the means of production. And it, we try to describe it as a qualitative change because all of us grew up during the epic of the Industrial Revolution. When the factory system, and that's what Marx called it, when the factory system held dominance in society and everyone was compelled to reorganize themselves around the factory system. Now, this factory system is composed of several moving parts, right? Actually, when we talk about the factory system and the Industrial Revolution, we are talking about an industrial technological complex. At least that's what Paul Cockshot would call it in his book, How you know the World Works. And I mention that because I grew up in a factory system. I'm a second-generation industrial auto worker. So as the technological revolution began to heat up in the late 60s and early 70s, we were impacted directly in Detroit. Now, the profound difference is that the world I grew up in no longer exists. We were organized somewhat on the basis that's laid out by the old Communist International, where they spoke of making every factory your fortress, where they talked about having neighborhood organizations that were centered around factory circles. They used language like forming, forming like industrial factions, forming factions in your trade unions. 
that world no longer exists. We will be organized on a different basis where you have huge corporations like Google, Apple, Netflix, Samsung. And these huge corporations are recreating the city. The old city was the industrial city form. Today's city, and we're out in the San Jose area right now, today's cities are organized around these new corporations. What it means is that the old forms of organization that I grew up utilizing are spent. They'll no longer do. We are trying to train ourselves to keep up with this new young generation that's using a whole new level of technology and communications to create a new mass consciousness. In fact, you and I talking today is proof of the vitality of the new technology where we can talk simultaneously from different points in the world today. I think at this point, utilizing new technology to create a world consciousness, a world brain, if you will, is fresh on the agenda. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I wanted to say another word along the lines of robotics and what it means. One thing it's meaning now that computers and robotics are infiltrating every form of production and eliminating workers is that um, we're seeing the old institutions that were created to uh, meet the needs of industrialism crack and fracture. Everything's breaking up. So we're seeing, for example, the Republican and Democratic parties breaking up. And I've been thinking about whether the police department was created to meet the uh, needs of industrial society. And part of what we're seeing is it's cracking up, only it's refusing to be cracked up. And so the people are having to go out in the streets to try to move it forward. In terms of um, our direct experience, when we formed the League of Revolutionary Black Workers back in 1969, and later the Communist Labor Party in 1974, we inherited the legacy of the common term. By that I mean our doctrines of struggle and the way we understood the world was based on common term doctrine and common term analysis of the basic classes and stuff. That world no longer exists. We tend to forget at times that Lenin and his Bolsheviks They came to power during the last stage transition from agriculture to industry, when the industrial factory system was being set up worldwide. Today in 2020, we can no longer talk about or have a vision and outlook that's based on the old common term. That period of history has gone. And with it, all of the doctrines and propositions are no longer valid, simply because that world no longer exists. But we inherited that uh, legacy of the common term directly. And in fact, we had one comrade named Admiral Kilpatrick, who was a political commissar in the uh, common term. In fact, Kiel, that's what we used to call him. He was sent to Spain, if you will, to help fight the Trotskyites, right, at anarchists. And I was grateful just to be able to touch the helm of such a man. But today we're talking about a very different world you know, than the mm-hmm. one that grew up on the basis of uh, 
the industrial system, or what in Europe they call the Henry Ford stage or Fordism. Yeah, the Fordism, world we're in today different, very different. Yes, that, that's quite. That's quite. Um, quite. I guess a lot of communists, and Marxists, uh, would would say that that's quite bold. Uh, you know, the, the the idea that uh, you, would you go as far to say that. All of the the ideas, all of the foundations of of the old Comintern, all of the methods of struggle and conclusions made by uh, the Bolsheviks and other communist groups uh, are are now sort of uh, something that we cannot apply no longer. I think it's the wrong way to look at things to talk about absolutes or all of anything. Uh, mm. My point of view prevents me from conceptualizing reality like that. Because when we look at things, there's exceptions to all rules. But when we talk about a doctrine of the common term, first of all, we're talking about a world that was growing up on the basis of the emergence of monopoly capitalism and a new form of imperialism that actually arose in America first. I am saying categorically, that world that grew up on the basis of the Berlin Conference and the splitting of the world into imperialist blocks no longer exists. I am saying categorically that the world that grew up on the basis of the Henry Ford stage of the Industrial Revolution no longer exists. I am saying categorically that world that grew up on the basis of the Ford system had its heart and center in Detroit, Michigan. And my dad worked for the Ford Motor Company and I followed my dad to the auto industry, and we literally witnessed the revolution in technology. It's hard to see right now, but in yesteryear, Detroit was the center of technological innovation in America and worldwide. In fact, the auto industry is the classic home of technological innovation. So it should not come as a shock that we would experience the qualitative change in the means of production. However, the view that every proposition, all absolutes, I think that's unworthy of Marxists. I'm saying the fundamental propositions that constituted the doctrine of Bolshevism and specifically Leninism no longer applies. Now, what I feel personally is that the culture of Bolshevism is absolutely uh, applicable. However, the doctrine of Leninism, which was based on the colonial figuration of the world, it is absolutely spent. And that does not mean everything Lenin wrote in his 45 volumes. No, we can't think mm. like that. You know, mm. that's not proper. So if we could maybe uh, specify in terms of, from the perspective of a communist movement, Trying to organize, trying to build, um, you know, which which elements would we say are still usable? Uh, so particularly, like, is the vanguard party? Does that uh, element of the ideology still apply? Is that still something we should use? And class struggle uh, is that still our vehicle? Is that still the vehicle by which uh, communists will organize and still uh, agitate? And then also in terms of um, the sort of one moment, sorry, the particular sort of organizational elements too. So uh, I think this is probably where we might see your answer more clearly. 
Is it based more on the fact that the factory is no longer there, that organizing and agitating and driving the class struggle is, is not going to be achievable in the same ways? Yeah, I think that's a correct statement. And, you know, we're here two miles from Netflix. You can't get into that place, but it it doesn't look anything like a factory used to look. And everything has changed, Um, not the ideas of class struggle. So the fundamental class analysis, the fact, if we look at what is to be done, Lenin has a class analysis. We have a class analysis. Lenin put his faith in the proletariat, which was a new class. Who are these workers in these factories? What would make you think that they could take anything over? And it turned out they were the special product of capitalism, which produces workers with nothing to sell but their labor power. So Lenin went with the class that was arising. What we're seeing is a class of destitute proletarians who are absolutely pushed out of production and will never be able to get a job flowing around the world. You know, you see the homeless all over the place. They are the special product of the robotic economy while it is under the control of the bourgeoisie and more and more the control of a few oligarchical families and then the rest of the world has nothing. Obviously, this has to change. So the attitude of class struggle, how to analyze something. When you read Lenin, you can see how to analyze the problem, but it doesn't mean we're going to start giving out paper, you know, pieces of paper today, like East encouraged people to do back then, set up a route, write a newspaper. We're looking at a very different form of struggle. You know, and see, um, qualitative change in the means of production, and obviously, and I'm serious about saying obviously, Digital technology built on the semiconductor is different than technology that was built based on electromechanical principles. This change does not obliterate the class struggle or anything like that. It changes the form of the class struggle. When we talk about Lenin, we're talking about a doctrine and strategy that Lenin called the proletariat carrying out the bourgeois democratic revolution. And he states this real, real clear in two tactics of social democracy. Also in his What is to be Done, it's a chapter called The Russian Proletariat as the Vanguard Champion of Democracy. What I'm trying to describe is a world that was moving from feudal economic and social relations to industrial social relations. It is obvious the world is not feudal. I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's elementary. And the problem is that a section of, in my view, A section of the Marxist movement is stuck in doctrine rather than the science that Marx and Engels talk about. Now, when we talk about a vanguard party, Lenin conceived his vanguard party according to what he wrote and explained on the basis of championing the Russian proletariat as the vanguard champion of democracy. I do not know, to be frank, the form of political party or rather 
the form of communist organization that will allow us to participate in what Marx called the overthrow of existing conditions. So I don't want to sound like we are suggesting that somehow the class struggle has disappeared. It has not, and I find that to be bizarre. The class struggle has changed because the form of technology has changed. That's the essence of Marx's uh, science of society. The changes, qualitative changes in the means of production creates new forms of classes. And the new classes that was created that Lenin and Marx talk about is called the industrial form of the working class. Engels, in fact, explains this real clear in his, um, uh, 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 what's that? No, 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 uh, Engels. We have it in Marx's glossary. It's, uh, it was the <laughs> forerunner to, to the Communist Manifesto. And in the mm. forerunner to the Communist Manifesto, I forget because I didn't got old and stuff. But Engels explains the different forms of the working class, you know, and the transition from manufacturing workers to industrial workers. And today we're talking about digital workers and robotics, you know. And we began to write about this in the late 60s and early 70s in Detroit. In fact, one of the most famous writers was a, a guy called uh, James Boggs. And he wrote uh, a book that was called uh, Pages uh, from a Negro Worker's Notebook and uh, the American Revolution. And the language was different then because it was called cybernetics back then. In the 50s, mm. the scientists called it telemechanics. We didn't even have the language we use nowadays. But this is a process we live. No, the class struggle has not been obliterated. It's been sharpened and heightened in a way that's unprecedented. And we see that today in the demonstrations taking place around the foul murder of George mm -hmm. Floyd. Something mm -hmm. different is taking place in our country, and that cannot be ignored, you know. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yes, no, before we, before we get into uh, to, to the George Floyd uh, situation, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I, think we've, I think you've explained very well the, the, the description and issue around form, forms of struggle and, and what to do, what is to be done. Um, so, and obviously this is all related to technology, as you said, uh, from the factory system to the the robotics and the digitals, but um, in, in your experience, in terms of organizing, uh, will will this technology, will this new situation, uh, will this make revolution easier or harder? Uh, I mean, and particularly, I think it'll be interesting to see you. Um, you've all had some experience with Detroit, and of course, yes, the factory system there that's now completely gone and moved to factories around the world, and so having organizing on the factory system would, would have been something that you would have been very familiar with, but now you're presented with a situation where a factory can disappear or move and workers are no longer organized in the same way. So this new situation, this new form, um, and with technology that comes with it too, will this make things, will this make things like organizing easier or harder? I think it just makes it different. And uh, that's why we're uh, looking at uh, the internet and its connection with people because <clears throat> that's how everybody's connecting. And of course, we're still in kind of a semi-lockdown here from the coronavirus. So everybody's really connecting on the internet now. And, uh, you know, the a lot of the ideas of struggle and opposition to opportunists and things like that remain 
relevant, but we have to shake off the old context. This is not uh, czarist Russia. You know, we're not calling for people to seize the telegraph office and <laughs> any more than we want you to drive your 1917 car up to our house. And so everything has changed, but a lot of it remains the same. And the basic dynamic, of course, of human interaction and Marxist philosophy remains the same. So in addition to the science, we have the philosophy of dialectical materialism, and that doesn't change from one era to the next. It develops, but it doesn't become mooted out, doesn't become irrelevant. I don't want to pretend that uh, we're young people. At 67 years old, I'm no longer a young man, so I'm not here trying to suggest directives on how a new generation should go about organizing themselves and finding collectivity. My task as a gray head, a man with gray hair, is to figure out how to do what we can, which is fundamentally to help educate and train a new generation of revolutionaries in Marxist philosophy and theory. What that means is like fighting so that young people understand how to think things out. What is it that I am looking at? What did Marx mean about class and class society and classes moving in antagonism? Why did he talk about society is polarizing into two groups, right? Proletariat and bourgeoisie. That polarization was only at a certain stage when I was growing up, when I entered the factory system. So when we talk about organizing today, my task and the task of our collective, which is a group of old heads, is to discover the new means to educate people, our young people, in the science of Marx and the doctrine of revolution. Leninism is a doctrine of revolution. Marxism is a science of revolution that explained to humanity for the first time the basic components of society, why and how people are compelled to organize around technology and means of production. It shows humanity, the workers, the proletariat, what it means to reproduce your daily lives and how these social patterns in society form. Our task, mm -hmm. if you will, our job is to help educate and ensure that the proletarian revolution is led by culture and intelligent people, you know, mm -hmm. not to give yeah, directives or anything like that. No, uh, that's, that's understandable. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of that, then, you know, the communist revolution and, and trying to guide us, the, the young people or the, the new generations, whatever you want to refer to it as. Um, certainly, I'm sure this has already always been a, a an historic problem, but most, uh, in my experience, it seems to have become somewhat heightened. And uh, particularly in America recently is obviously the issue of identity and particularly identity politics. And uh, I think you've got in your book here, you've mentioned um uh, the material foundation for identity politics has been shattered by the new economy, which sets the basis for a different communist movement. Uh, while concessions are winnable, there are no reforms left in the capitalist system. But what I'd like you to particularly get is, is the identity politics. Um, a lot of communists, uh, leftists, Marxists, obviously lots of people that have different labels for each other, um, have this issue. And this is certainly a problem with modern organizing. Uh, 
with you know in the post factory system, people struggle uh, and have these issues with with identity politics and how how best should we navigate that? What do we do with that? Well, you know, um, let me start out uh, backwards, if you will. When we talk no about there being no more reform left in the system, we mean a specific thing. The word reformulate means to reformulate a system without changing its essential quality. During the epic of the Industrial Revolution, the system went through what we call different quantitative stages of development where society was more or less reorganized around the factory system. At an early stage of the Industrial Revolution, we had these forms of worker organization that was organized on the basis of craft, craft unionism. What craft and craft unionism was, was organization based on the skill of workers. For instance, you had baker's union. If you was not a baker, you could not join a baker union. Those forms of unions were called syndicates. The syndicate is an identity movement, and the identity that's being isolated in the baker's union is what we call your hands, your skill, or your craft. What I'm saying is that when we talk about identity movements today, we have to look at how it developed through, developed through history from the beginning of the organization of the workers up until today. Syndicates and syndicalism, and then anarcho-syndicalism, all of these are identity movements. The identity is the job that you do. Once you take this form of syndicalism, which is wedded to what you do outside of the workplace, it becomes what we call an identity movement. Let me give you an example. When we talk about Black people and the Black struggle, we are talking about a form of social struggle that's outside of the workplace. It's outside of the point of production. And the feature, the identity of it is the color factor or skin or the colonial form of struggle. What I'm trying to describe is that the identity movements in 2020 is what was historically a syndicalist movement and a movement based on identity. The problem is that we grew up in a country where colonialism and white supremacy has blinded us to the obvious. What was obvious to me as a colonial worker was that the trade unions were identity movements. In this country, if you were not white, you could not join the union. They would kill you. It was obvious as an identity movement. It was only in the post-World War II period that the unions in our country began to share the white identity. So today when we're talking about a movement that's an identity movement, and we're talking about the base of the identity movements being shattered, what we mean is there exists today a core that's growing daily of proletarians who are not united on the basis of being unskilled, where they work. They're united on the basis of being shoved outside of society and they need to eat. They need food. They need shelter. They need medical care. Their children need education. This growing group of people that's learning how to express itself, that's just beginning to stir, is the beginning of a new proletarian movement, the kind of proletarian movement that Marx and Engels talked about. But we had to go through all these stages of development of the industrial system to arrive at this point. 
But to go back a little bit again, uh, uh, when we deal with words like reform and concession, in the post-World War II period, the system of capitalism was reformed. That is to say, new forms of organization was created to mediate the relationship between worker and capitalist. Industrial trade unions in America achieved a legal status. We call it the Roosevelt Coalition and the Roosevelt Reform. Reforms reformulate relations between classes, workers and capitalists, without changing the system. In our country, worker and capitalists fought over shares of the social product. They did not, the workers did not fight to overthrow the system because they couldn't. In fact, the old feudal serf, he could not fight to overthrow the system of feudalism nor could he develop a consciousness that allowed him to see an overthrow. The most a class that const can do that constitutes the base of a system, the most a class can do that constitutes the basis of a system, the most a class can do that constitutes the base and foundation of the system is fight for a greater share of the social product. What has to happen is revolution and the means of production that create new classes. In history, the new classes created that overthrew feudalism was worker and capitalists. The serf didn't overthrow the system of feudalism, nor could the industrial worker overthrow the system of industrial capitalism. And it did not happen. The problem is that we have been under the spell of an old period of history. And that's not a bad thing because we love our legacy at a common time. However, that period of history is over. So identity movements that grew up on the basis of the industrial system their ideology linger on, but they simply will go nowhere. And we're seeing this played out today because the spontaneous movement, this explosion of young people against the state for fair play, for human dignity, for the right to live is a different kind of movement, but it's just starting up. So, yeah, this is absolutely a qualitatively different period of history where we're going to discover what Shakespeare called the undiscovered country. What Lee Morgan, one of my old jazz musicians, called the search for the new land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're here at that moment of history. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, okay, brilliant. So, um, yeah, you, you've touched on something there about a new movement, a new uh, social movement emerging. And I guess the, the elephant in the room, of course, is uh, the recent upsurge in protest in uh in, in protests and riots across the U.S. in relation to George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd. Um, so, yeah, putting this into the context of, of communist revolution and, and the class struggle. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? What, what are we seeing right now in America? Well, Chris Hedges, who, as you know, called for Occupy Wall Street, is saying that the road to revolution in America is that the U.S. is stumbling toward revolution down a path of spontaneous uprisings. And this obviously is the biggest spontaneous uprising that we've had. And uh, it's hard to say where it's going, how it's going to last, but it is not black. When we look at TV, we see an extremely mixed crowd almost everywhere. Some places you see an almost entirely white crowd calling for Black Lives Matter. And uh, it's uh, very intense, but who can say where it's going to go? Because we have never seen 
anything like this, where we have the stress of a pandemic, an economic crisis, and the political crisis in Washington, D.C., all at once. Yeah, well, all of these are big questions. Um, This murder, this public murder of George Floyd has affected the world. And for the first time, for the first time actually in human history, you had a simultaneous mourning over the loss of life at the hands of police worldwide. And it's unfolding at the same time. And it's affecting and creating a different kind of consciousness. The hardest thing, you know, like for us to do, for me to do, absolutely, is, is to break into history. I mean, where do you begin? You know, like, if we talked about, I guess a good place would be 2010 in the Detroit Social Forum. Then we have 2012 and Occupy Wall Street. What I'm trying to say is that we have these junctures that have taken place in our country that leads up to the election of Donald Trump. And at each stage, we have these movements that's expanding and dying down that lead to today. There's nothing new about police murder of colonials in our country. And by colonials, I mean black, brown, and red. We, the movement is still couched in these old terms called race. Mm. Black Lives Matter. Well, when you talk about Black Lives Matter, and my life most certainly matters, beneath those words, what we see is a destitute proletariat that's being slaughtered by the police. And this destitute proletariat is at its core, black, brown, and red, because black, brown, and red proletarians were the last to enter the industrial system and the first to be ejected from them, from this, this old uh, industrial system. So they are, effect, they are affected and impacted more. Plus the control of blacks and black labor has always been key to controlling the working class in our country. White supremacy is a material force. You know, so what we're seeing today is this enormous wave of protest that is being galvanized by white youthful proletarians, many of them who will never enter the system, who instinctively understand that they are being forced to eke out a wretched existence, to go lower and lower, or begin to protest and find ways to express themselves. We have a right to live, and they're saying that everyone have a right to live. And it's a beautiful thing to me. It's absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. So in terms of, yes, you, you, you described it, and I think many people have uh, also described it in a similar way that, yeah, what we're seeing now is a, a big, spontaneous upsurge. Uh, this is not the actions of an organized uh, vanguard movement or communist movement or even a, in, in organized in any sense. Um, but it is certainly a massive upsurge in a reaction to, to, to various things. So I think in leading up to our discussion, I think you mentioned about three branches of struggle for American workers. Uh, if you could explain what you, you meant by that. And I think you did also mention within that uh, legislation that workers should be uh, fighting for, putting forward. Um, yeah, if you could elaborate on that, please. Well, you know, like, we have three primary forms of struggle that can take place in our society. One of the forms that we're witnessing right now on a scale that's unprecedented is in the street. 
you know, and it appears like we're inching our way into a mass uprising. But we have these scattered protests, the fights in the street, the demonstrations that's taking place. That is a form of struggle. That struggle is in the street. Then you have a form of struggle that takes place in a modern bourgeois country that has, that works itself out in the legislature. What I mean by that is the passing and enactment of laws that's demanded by these upsurges to take place. It's two ways that the legislative struggle come about and are effective in society. One of them is changes in the economy where the bourgeoisie itself need to realign the social struggle. So they will pass legislation to realign society. Then, of course, the bourgeoisie itself has to have a certain form of legislative struggle to implement policy from sections of the bourgeoisie. Let me give you an example. Lenin talked about, in his time, the emergence of a new financial oligarchy. In America, the way this worked itself out was the passing of legislation in the 1870s and 80s and 90s to allow, let's say, the growth of the railway system. But they had to pass legislation to do that. Without this legislative struggle, they would have had to stand in the street and shoot each other. I'm trying to describe how things actually take place. And they take place through policy fights, through passing legislation. After you pass legislation in the United States, you have to have a way to implement the legislation that's been passed. And mm -hmm. America is such a huge country that you have to then go about creating the structures that can implement the new policies in all the different geographical states and areas. So I was trying to describe to the best of my ability the three primary forms of struggle, which are the mass protests, uprising in the streets, the legislative battles, and the judicial battles to enact laws. In 1969, when we formed the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, we were looking at the passage of civil rights legislation from 65 to 68 that sought to destroy legal segregation. Just because you pass a law in America, legislatively law, does not mean it's automatically implemented. We had to form ourselves into an organization to fight to shatter the actual structures of segregation that existed in unions like the auto worker unions, that existed in housing, that existed in every element of our society. Once upon a time, we was able to file petitions to the EEOC, right? And it was set up by the Justice Department to hear these complaints against segregation. So when we talk about the three forms of struggle, we are talking about in the streets, the legislative, the judicial struggle. And we can see how Donald Trump is trying, he is in fact stacking the court system so that they can implement new legislation favorable to the oligarchic form of fascism he's fighting for. Mm. <laughs> okay, so I think, yes, in terms of your, your three lines, the street, the judicial and the legislative. There are some pieces of legislation um, being proposed and being put forward right now um, by by various people. Uh, one of them is, is defunding the police. Um, I want to see what your thoughts are on that. But then also particularly, I think that, uh, like you mentioned earlier, uh, this specific issue of, of, of police brutality, uh, police killings, is not new. Um, this has been going on for decades. And there are 
other historical examples of um, st struggle or, or, or tactics, I should say, against uh, this kind of activity that we could perhaps consider. And what I'm referring to there is obviously, if we put into your terms of the street, could organizers consider perhaps creating uh, street bodies to counter patrol the police uh, to make sure that when the police enter certain neighborhoods where they are known to, uh, you know, where they are conducting their abuses, that they are met with a, a, a sort of local force that is observing them in, in the least to start. Um, so, yeah, and this is obviously an, an example that, you know, something that the Black Panthers did historically in some form. But I want to see, what do you think about using those types of tools and mechanisms, particularly the legislation of defunding the police and then people organizing in the street to have counter patrols to the police. What are your thoughts on that? The fact that the demonstrators are calling for defunding the police shows demands on a much higher political level than we've ever seen before from demonstrations. <clears throat> it used to be fire officer so-and-so. Now it's defund the police. Uh, you know, on the other hand, this country's gotten so violent and there are so many weapons out there, it's hard to totally obliterate them, but it's very clear the movement is moving toward defund the police, get rid of the police, or have a police department that functions in a completely different manner. <clears throat> For instance, one of the because social services have been totally cut back, if not eliminated, the police are the ones who handle mental health emergencies rather than any kind of caretaking type of people. And it's not unusual for them to, the family is having an emergency, they call on the police, and the police come out and kill the family member who was having the trouble. And so clearly that function has to be entirely removed from policing or the police chase the homeless around. Uh, they, the police steal all their stuff, throw it into a trash compactor and chase the homeless so they won't be as visible anymore. All of that is not a proper function of the police, and these various functions need to be removed down to a very basic level. Uh, on the other hand, when, a, when an abused woman calls for the police, uh, sometimes police come out who abuse their wives, but the women really, really need the physical protection as our dear president has encouraged people to assault women and the women's rights are suffering very gravely here and they need protection. Now, clearly, you mentioned organizing and the people organizing for self-defense. I'd be interested to hear what Wasteland thinks of that because we're so far from that. It seems to me, but I just said we were far from a 10-day worldwide mm. demonstration over George Floyd. So who knows mm. what's far off? You know, um, 
We have to keep in mind that America is an enormously large country. For instance, Germany could fit in the state of Texas. So we're talking about a country that's vast, that has different geographical regions, that have different areas and different policing authorities. So it's no such thing as a one formula fits all. I want to draw upon some old experiences. When I joined the revolutionary movement in 1968, our slogan was arm yourself or harm yourself. We have a fundamentally different tradition than the tradition that grew up on the West Coast and Oakland involving the Black Panther Party. So it would be natural that we would have a different point of view simply because we come out of the factory system. You had like revolutionaries in Detroit and other places that went to war with the police department. We had areas in Cleveland, Ohio, for instance, where the police would not even enter the area. What that means is when somebody died in the community, the police, nobody would come to get them. People had to transport the people out of their communities to the funeral homes. What I'm trying to describe is a dose of reality where we get away from these formulistic ways of dealing with reality. When we talk about the police force, the first thing we have to do is ask what Ingalls told us to ask in dialectics of nature. What is the environment? What is the history of this thing? What is this development? What is this connections? The police force in our country has a developmental path. It has a history. It grew out of the slave patrol. Today, when we look at the police department, we have to first study its history because it is being broke up. It is being broke up because all of that that arose and took shape on the basis of the industrial system is being broke up. How do we know that? Our Marxism tells us that. Marxism tells us that when something fundamental to a circumstance or a situation change, Everything dependent on that which is fundamental must in turn change when everything fundamental to a system change. All that is dependent on that which is fundamental must in turn change. Not all at one time. When that which is fundamental to a system change, everything dependent on that which is fundamental must in turn change. And this includes the police department. We are witnessing in front of us the development of private police forces. These private police forces and armies are connected to major corporations. It's part of the new fascist form of the state. In Detroit, for instance, you have Wayne State University. They have their own police force. What I'm describing is the breakup of old institutions. It is a section of the bourgeoisie, the capitalists, that's pushing for the breakup of the police system itself. Their demands happen to coincide with the push of a newly awakening proletariat that's demanding the destruction of the old form of policing. So I think we need to try as hard as we can to fight to better understand what's taking place. What is the history of this? How did it develop so that we don't get caught in trying to repeat old strategies and formula of the past? In fact, um, we had some shootouts in Detroit. One can look it up, something called the New Bethel Incident, where the police entered 
a church where a meeting was being held by the Republic of New Africa, and a couple of police were killed. And I mention these things because there's no one formula fit all. We are not trying to tell young people how they should organize themselves, but we are strongly suggesting that we look at the history of things, that we learn our Marxism, that we try to learn philosophy and teach ourselves how to think out a problem. What is this history? What is this direction? What's rising and developing? What is fundamental to the process? What is the direction of our society? And we like to understand things because we have a right to live and we have a society that has advanced to a point where these old barbaric forms of control and methods of mass murder, where you have an empire state like the USA bombing the world proletariat, we want to bring that form of society to an end. But we want to do it in a way where we're not stuck on trying to recreate Leninism, <laughs> right? We don't want to retool the doctrine of the common term. Lenin didn't retool the doctrine of the Second International. They created new doctrine. The Second International, which was formed during Engels' lifetime, it did not try to retool what Marx and Engels did with the First International. The First International began to teach the proletariat how to think things out. The Second International arose and developed to teach the proletariat, the mass proletarian party. Lenin and the Bolsheviks taught the proletariat an insurrectionary form of struggle. We have new tasks that confront us today, and we are in the process of discovering them. How do we fight things out in such a way as to build a society of communism? And by communism, we don't mean what the comrades of the era of Leninism meant. During Lenin's time, communism was a philosophy and vision. Today, communism is the fight of the proletariat worldwide to eat every day, to have shelter every day, to have medical and educational opportunities for our children without a demand for money. We'll figure out how to pay for everything after we eat, not before. During the era of the common turn, you figured out before you ate how to repay. And the new era of robotics, of communist revolution, we eat first. Then we figure out how to pay for it, deploying robotic production. So uh, in short, I'm not trying to recreate the experience of the Panthers in Oakland, California, which was radically different than the experience of the revolutionary workers working in a factory system and fighting are capitalists. I'm not trying to recreate that. And by saying that, I mean to not offend anyone who embraced that history. But again, our slogan was arm yourself or harm yourself. And that has not changed. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, so in terms of today, organizations that exist, uh, that are growing, perhaps, where do you see this current upsurge, this current um, spontaneous movement, uh, who who do you see as the sort of leading organization to make something of it? Uh, if, if there's more than one, of course, then listen, please. But um, yeah, who, who should we look, look at? Who should we be looking at right now? Who can we be listening to uh, for guidance, for tactical decisions, for implementing revolutionary struggle uh, against the bourgeois state in the USA? Well, that's happening in a, a form 
that is extremely difficult to control. The government would like to send out the church ministers to tell the people to go back home. Those people are not in control. The Democratic Party is used to seizing control of groups that start to rebel and then deflect them from a revolutionary type of aim. There is no group that can be called on to control these people. There is even Occupy as anti-hierarchical as they were, had more organization than the present upsurge. It seems to me, which is why it can't be pulled back. History uh, offers, you know, notions, solutions, and ways of looking at things. Because in America, we're going through a certain process where we have people that's opposed to injustice but because of pragmatism, right? Because of a very bourgeois philosophy, they don't understand how things work. Let me give you an example. Going into the Civil War, the working class in the North, it hated slavery without hating the slave system. This hatred of slavery without hating the slave system meant you really hated the slave. And I'm saying it like that because Abraham Lincoln was faced with a delicate task. How, do, how could he do things in such a way as to overcome this blindness of a section of our working class and enlist them in a fight to overthrow slavery? I want to repeat this. The Northern working class hated slavery without hating the slave system. We saw this dynamic work itself out in 2012 with the Occupy movement. Occupy Wall Street was against Wall Street. They hated the banks without hating the banking and financial system. They hated the banks without hating the financial banking system. That means that the task of Marxist revolutionaries is profoundly educational and tracking in real time the actual experience of our working class. What is our working class experiencing right now in real time? What sections of our working class are in motion in real time? What messages do we fight as a collective to understand so that we can synthesize the experience of our working class? We have a mass of young people that's gathering in Washington, D.C. right now that's placing the citadels of power under siege in a way that's unprecedented in American history. They don't understand yet because they're just awakening to a conscious life. See, if there's something in Lenin to be captured, it's this whole concept of the development of class consciousness. We can't do it like Lenin did it, but this notion that says there is a need to develop class consciousness is something we can use, but not like Lenin. Why? Because things have changed. What has changed? The working class itself. How? In Lenin's time, you did not have a proletarian intellectual schooled in Marxism. What you had was intelligentsia that was won over to Marx and Marxism in the science of society. After the period of the common turn and in the post-World War II period, you had a new intellectual phenomenon taking place in America. In Detroit, it started where you had a group of industrial workers 
who became living proletarian intellectuals. The only other places this happened was in places like the Soviet Union, where they had an infrastructure education where they could educate the proletariat. In Detroit, we fought and invested all of our money and time into developing and expanding a new proletarian uh, intelligentsia. And we are part of that new proletarian intelligentsia that arose during the last stage of the industrial system and going into this new age of robotics. What I'm trying to describe is a real process because our fight is always to learn how to think out of process, to understand its direction, to talk about where we're going. No, I do not know the next steps that these young people will take, but we're going to experience it together mm. and we're going to fight to educate to the best of our ability because we old people, man, and our legs be hurting <laughs> and we can't be marching like we used to march unless, of course, we join a wheelchair. <laughs> now, we got two wheelchairs downstairs. I, I kid you not. Because we will roll up on the damn police. We're going to roll up on the police, right? Because that's the best we can do, you know. But no, okay. we have to be part of educating, you know. So I think, um, I, I think what I'd like to get, I think, if there are, so whoever's listening, um, if we imagine this, let's put ourselves in, in a sort of, in someone's shoes, um, if there is a, a young protester, a young American, or I suppose it could be from anywhere, but particularly, let's say, an American. There's a young American protester listening right now who's feeling the rage at the George Floyd situation, the killing, and is, and is you know, bursting to go outside, wanting to go and, and do something. And they don't know what to do. They're listening to the Democrats. They're watching the news. They're, they're angry, and, and they don't know what to do. And they want to do something that's constructive. And um, I would like to, each of you, if you could give your best advice to someone who is wanting to do something, who's bursting to full of, full of anger and, um, you know, indignation at, at what's happened. What, what do you recommend them to do? What's your advice with all of the experience that you all have there? I recently posted on Facebook, mask up, social distance, protect yourself. On the other hand, be aware of provocateurs. Don't let anybody drag you into something that is ill-considered. We had situations where pallets of bricks were showing up with nobody having ordered them or asked for them near demonstrations. There apparently is someone who wants young people to be throwing bricks. And we're just saying, be careful. Don't be provoked. Look carefully at the situation. You know, um, I, I, always, I always go back to when I was a young person and stuff. And uh, when I was 14, 15, and 16, I had my own peer group, you know. And in my own peer group, we uh, felt things. And I understand the pain young people are going through and their tears, their hurt. Make no mistake about it, the young people in America and the world are hurt. They're shedding tears. They feel anxiety and pain, and they are combining in their own groups. I cannot, I refuse to try to tell them what to do. In their groups, they are communicating with one another 
and getting in the streets in a different way. They have different forms of creating flash mobs and coming together that matches their lifestyle and how they do things. When I interact with these young people, I interact as an old man with gray hair and I support them, but I always have a, a memory stick, a book, a pamphlet, because our job is to educate the youth and ensure that the proletarian revolution is manned by people who are cultured, not simply angry people with a chip on their shoulder. And our job is to educate and teach them how to become cultured and to envision a new society where we learn how to live in harmony with nature and ourselves. We are going to have to learn how to teach young people how to repair themselves from the emotional pain they are experiencing. How do we overcome the mass tragedy of being beat down and debased by fascistic police? Because they're going to continue to rise up. They're going to experience trauma. And because we have somewhat learned how to repair ourselves, we are going to have to figure out how to offer them first aid mentally, emotionally, physically. We have to learn how to pass on our information about how we learn how to survive and continue to fight. We have to tell them about love lost and love won, about the families we grew up in, the collectors that we formed. We have to tell them the truth about our first dates, our loves, our likes. And we pass on this information about how to mature and, to, and growing to be in mature adults and, and things like that. And I want to frame the question like that so we can come out of this old way of thinking where we are telling people what to do. It simply won't work. I remember when I was a young person, I resented the older people trying to tell me exactly what to do. But I love when they gave me a book. I love when they shared their experience. I love when they broadened my world and gave me a way to dream and visualize a world of peace, of hope, of optimism, of love. And you know, like that's why I'm, 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 I'm not trying to avoid questions, but I wanna frame it in such a way where we make sense and our lives make sense. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I, I think all of your advice and all of your words have certainly been useful for me. I guess I'm, I'm not that young, but I, I suppose I still fit somewhere in that category um, towards the end of it. <laughs> but um, I'd say, yeah, th thank you very much for um, for joining me and uh, us on the Marxist Think Tank, uh, Comrade Wasteline, uh, Abdul and Robin. Uh, I, I've certainly been uh, very fascinated to hear what you guys have had to say. Um, and I think in the future, it would be great to have you on to discuss some other topics and to uh, to help, yeah, help guide guide us on certain things. Well, let's figure out a way to do this on a regular basis, because, I mean, all of us gray heads, we have a lot to share. We ain't trying, and we got to let the young people know we ain't trying to live your life or tell you what to do, but we can share our experience, our pains, our hopes, our dreams, and we stand with, well, we don't stand with you. We riding with you in our wheelchairs. <laughs> with you in our wheelchairs, because we love you, you know. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Comrade Wasteland, and uh, thank you very much, Robin and Abdul. Thank you. Okie doke. Perfect. Bye-bye.
that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.